Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is Sam Bendet, part of the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems and a friend. Sam, welcome back to the program. Pleasure having you back on. Always great to be back, Rago. Uh, a pleasure indeed in our coverage of strategy, strategic issues, and conversations with leading thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series uh, and our affiliated programs are not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Uh, Sam? Uh, sadly, uh, U.S. politics will mean, uh, will likely mean no more military aid for Ukraine, at least for the uh, time being, uh, which unfortunately um, sends a message that Republican lawmakers have said for some time they're not particularly e eager uh, to support Ukraine over the long term, especially as Donald Trump has emerged as a leading um, contender uh, for the Republican presidential nomination. I'm not asking you to get involved in national uh, politics. We'll see how this border deal Ukraine aid, Israel aid package plays out over the coming days and weeks. What's clear is Ukraine's back is against the wall. Uh, the EU made $54 billion uh, four-year economic aid package available, but the bulk of military support has come from the United States and most of it from our stocks. And the last of those stocks were delivered late last year, early uh, this year. You're talking to battlefield commanders uh, and other folks on the ground shows the situation is getting increasingly dire, even as uh, the Ukrainians try to adapt uh, to this. Where do things stand now and what are the implications of actually not immediately making aid available for Ukraine at this point? Well, again, I, I think you're right. I don't want to get involved in sort of the larger debate um, that is taking place in Congress. But I, I think it's also uh, indicative uh, that um, Chief of Staff Zaluzhny actually published not one, but several articles on what Ukraine needs to do uh, in relatively quick succession. His last uh, piece in the CNN really talks about Ukraine changing how it fights altogether based on the situation it finds itself in, including lack of some weapons uh, and uh, certainly presence of, of many other types of weapons. So Ukraine isn't obviously done for, uh, but uh, the uh, ideas coming from on top from the military leadership indicate that Ukraine needs to adapt a very different approach to uh, combating Russia, especially given the situation it finds itself in with the relatively uh, stable stalemate. And uh, what are some of those capabilities? Uh, and we'll get to the political disconnect or uh, challenge or disagreement or spat or however you want to call it between Zaluzhny uh, and uh, Zelensky. But what is uh, the chief of defense staff recommending in terms of this new strategy, right? Because he said, we've got to fight this completely differently if we don't have, for example, artillery rounds on which sort of the Ukrainian order of battle is built. Right. Uh, the key emphasis, for example, in his CNN article was on different types of unmanned systems, including UAVs in very large quantities. And you and I have been talking about it since uh, this invasion has started, and uh, we've been talking about it in years past as well, almost from the very beginning when we started doing your your podcast. Um, the importance of UAVs, different types of uncrewed systems, cannot be um, overemphasized right here. It's uh, it's one of the most important weapons in the war, and will remain so 
And so Zaluzhny rightfully pointed to mass scale application of UAVs as a breakthrough weapon, as a weapon to hold Russians off, and uh, maybe as a surrogate to some of the artillery systems and uh, the lack of artillery shells. Uh, so a lot will depend on how Ukrainian industry and society will actually marshal its resources. There's a lot of debate right now in um, English language and Ukrainian language media about what the volunteers are doing with respect to building UAVs, the relationship between the volunteers and the government, relationship between the volunteers and the military. I mean, it's a fairly open discussion. Obviously, it probably represents a very small part of what is happening at the front, but still it kind of gives us a window into what Ukraine is doing. But Zaluzhny's emphasis on unmanned systems, specifically in the CNN piece as the overarching theme, is probably a major signal to both the domestic defense industry, to all the volunteers, to the military, and to the international community at large, that UAVs and unmanned aerial systems of different kinds, including uh, some unmanned ground vehicles, are going to be absolutely pivotal this year, and probably not just for this conflict, but other conflicts as well. And uh, walk us through some of the capabilities the Ukrainians are working on to, uh, uh, fielding and whether they can do this on their own, right? I mean, the entire mass of Chinese industry and Russian industry is being devoted, right? Uh, the Ukrainians have already said, good luck finding a DJI drone uh, because, you know, every every available one is being sent uh, to Russia and the Russians are have like a 10 to 1 advantage now. What are the things the Ukrainians can do, the international community can do, right? Because at the end of the day, Congress has to authorize assistance, military assistance if it's going to go there, or or even financial assistance, right? So the Ukrainians are going to have to figure this out on their own or through other donations from allies and partners. Right. And Ukraine still depends on Chinese components to a very large extent. Uh, there are public uh, articles and statements coming from Ukrainian developers that they're still getting a lot of components and parts from China. Uh, sometimes that flow is is delayed, like with the um, action with Poland on the border, for example. Uh, but overall, there's still a lot of dependence on Chinese components. And this is probably both an advantage because they're still widely available and, of course, a point of vulnerability. And Ukrainians are already trying to launch initiatives to build a lot of components at home or to get um, similar components elsewhere, like in Western Europe. Still, the emphasis on China is absolute right now for both Ukraine and Russia. There's no getting around the dependence on Chinese-made components for simple, cheap drones. That's why they are simple and cheap, and that's why they could be manufactured in such staggering quantities in the many tens of thousands a month. Um, again, China has stated publicly that a lot of its technologies will not be available in Russia, Ukraine. But people are, can still get what they need, including some of the DJI and Autel quadcopters as well. But I think Ukraine wants to emphasize domestic production. It wants to move away from dependence on China because it is a security issue and a security threat. And there's a lot of startups in Ukraine that need government infusion, government support, international support. There's lots of ideas right now bubbling in Ukraine. But a few of those ideas must be selected sort of as, uh, as national projects with proper investment and backing by the Ukrainian government. And I think that's what the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Digital Transformation are probably going for right now. And, but do you think that it makes 
up the difference, right? On air and missile defense, Ukrainians are dependent, uh, have been dependent on the United States, obviously other uh, allies and partners for Patriots and Hawks. The Japanese have stepped up. You joined us a couple of weeks ago uh, with Tom Carrico explaining the key Japanese uh, role uh, behind the scenes in this. Is are, are the Ukrainians going to be able to do this themselves um, using unmanned means if the preponderance of other aid simply drops, dries up or we simply run out of those weapons, right? I mean, we're not building Patriots <laughs> or anything at the speed to replenish the things we're pulling out of stocks. You know, AMRAMs are running out, Patriots are running out. We're revitalizing Hawks, which is not exactly a new weapon and getting it into the breach. Are the Ukrainians really going to be able to do this, Sam, without sort of more conventional military support from everybody else? I think that's a very good question. And I think what this is what General Zaluzhny may have been alluding to when he talked about the emphasis on unmanned aerial systems of different kinds. We are already seeing how cheap UAVs can be a surrogate and a replacement for for missiles and cruise missiles. Russia uses Shahads basically as a missile surrogate, right? Um, both Russia and Ukraine are using FPV drones as surrogates for um, mortar shells and short-range artillery systems. Ukraine is building a lot of different types of long-range drones that can hit Russia's European territory, uh, basically with almost impunity, right? They can strike um, uh, they can strike cities, they can strike military bases, they can strike defense industrial facilities, infrastructure facilities. Obviously, a lot of them will be shut down, but these drones can penetrate deep into Russia before they're shut down. And that indicates the ability of these drones to actually be uh, similar in their um, overall use to um, missiles, for example. But that's a good question. I think this is something that we'll have to um, we'll have to develop in the next several months. We'll have to see how the West, NATO, United States, Ukraine, how they agree on certain things and what they decide on. Walk us through where Russia is in terms of its capabilities. Right, there's a tendency not since October seven for attention to shift. Uh, to what's going on in Israel and Ukrainian officials are like, look, every other day, we're still getting hammered by cruise missiles and hypersonic weapons and large scale um, uh, unmanned uh, systems attacks, right? Shahed's and, and son of Shahed, uh, the jet powered version the Russians have uh, developed and have in production. There's an army that w- walk us through all the things the Russians are doing to build up their capabilities? And how is the nature of what the Ukrainians are trying to counter changing in a very real-time basis? Because every couple of weeks, Sam, you know, as you've been pointing out when you join us each time, the systems on the battlefield are changing, whether they're electronic warfare systems, whether they're tactics, uh, or, or whether they're the systems themselves. There hasn't been that much change uh, when it comes to the operational picture right now. Obviously, it's still very much a, a stalemate and a, um, a positional conflict. And uh, General Zaluzhny has been alluding to it repeatedly. Uh, Russians do have a lot of soldiers on the ground. Um, the overall force is, um, I think, quoted to be anywhere between 370,000 to over half a million people. Uh, Russia still has a lot of weapons and systems it can mass against Ukraine. It still has a lot of older systems that has modernized um, in full or in haste, such as uh, main battle tanks that are many decades old. And Russia still maintains um, the pressure on Ukraine in launching uh, Shahed uh, drones and, and, and other types of missiles. But um, right now, I think either side is preparing for some sort of um, 
defense against the adversary breakthrough. Russia is massing soldiers in certain areas. It's massing tanks uh, for uh, a way to sort of break through the Ukrainian defenses. But a lot of these preparations and a lot of these move a lot of these movements, excuse me, can be almost completely negated by the presence of UAVs on the battlefield. Right? We talked for uh, over a year and a half how um, the persistent UAV presence in Ukraine basically makes anything that moves in Ukraine a target, anything, including single soldier. And the presence of so many FPV drones at the tactical level, right, drones that can fly anywhere between 5 to 15 kilometers, uh, makes any movement very dangerous. So no matter what kind of forces are arrayed in, in whatever quantity along the front, they become the target. So that's why, again, I keep coming back to the Luzhny CNN article because it's indicative of how Ukraine wants to think right. about 2024, right? And the, how it wants to challenge the problem of UAVs, right? How it wants to use its own UAVs and negate the adversary UAVs. And of course, Russian defense industry hasn't stopped. It's still um, churning out a lot of systems and equipment. It's modernizing a lot of systems. And there's a lot of investment in uh, Russia's defense industrial sector which is skewing overall indicators for Russian economic performance because it it basically displays Russian economy is relatively stable. Um, but again, most of the investments are, in fact, in government-supported efforts, including the defense industrial complex. Uh, indeed, especially... Um as uh, Ukraine also tries to build up its own industrial capability. And a lot of uh, nations are supporting that, whether it's the UK, whether it's Germany. I know BAE Systems is playing a key role. Uh, Rheinmetall uh, is playing a role. And it's interesting also how former Soviet republics are pitching in with 152 millimeter rounds and things like that, right? I mean, gun barrel tubes. I think uh, Bulgarians have been helping on this. Poles have been helping. Uh, so I, I think there's kind of an adm admirable uh, community of support uh, that's that's going to Ukraine, even if the United States is uh, somewhat steadfast in not doing, at least some members of Congress are steadfast in not doing uh, the right thing or maybe the, the historically wrong thing. Um, and a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, HII, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Uh, Sam, let me uh, take you to uh, the question of Russia's war aims. Uh, for too long, senior U.S. leaders in particular, including former the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, were convinced that if Ukraine sort of converted its uh, battlefield advantage to a ceasefire, it would end up with only about 20 percent of its territory lost, right? That, that Crimea uh, is a step too far and it's not going to happen and it will be proved to be too difficult. Um, but I mean, that was, I think, a somewhat naive view with all due respect, because the Russians have never observed the ceasefire that they've ever struck with anybody. Um, have Russia's war aims at all changed? Does, does Russia still want to take all of Ukraine? I mean, how does this period, as you see it, play out? Or do you think the Ukrainians can actually hold their ground until they get more systems and build up enough capability? to succeed in what Kiev's war aims is, which is, um, you know, ejecting Russia from all Ukrainian territories. I'll say this. I think Russia's main tactic is basically to uh, outweigh any Western assistance to Ukraine, any NATO assistance to Ukraine. 
And Russia thinks that if it can continue fighting well into 2024, then the U.S. election will be a bellwether of uh, whether or not Ukraine will be supported in the long term. And uh, Russia's uh, tactic is to sow discord in the West amongst NATO and European Union members, try to uh, set them off against each other when it comes to aid to Ukraine. So that hasn't changed. Russia's uh, military aims have not changed as well. They're fighting against what they perceive as an unfriendly regime in Kiev, and they want to remove uh, Zelensky's government from power. Whether or not it takes the conquest of most of Ukraine or only part of Ukraine remains to be seen. So these aims have remained constant probably since 2023. And and just to refresh uh, the audience uh, on this, uh, uh, Sam, Walk us through some of the capabilities the Russians are building. Um, They continue to recruit more soldiers at a time when the Ukrainians are losing uh, too many of their most experienced soldiers because of a lack of ammunition. I want to get to the debate and the disagreement between Zeluzhny uh, and Zelensky in a a minute that did uh, bubble over publicly to the point everybody expected a change in leadership that never happened. What are some of the things and capabilities the Russians are building up that we're likely to see when the spring? I mean, there's fighting now. And the Ukrainians have lost and or ceded some territory um, at very high casualties. They're delivering even higher casualties on the Russians, but the Russians are a much bigger nation. As we look out over the next year and the next sort of fighting season when the weather improves and the ground uh, dries up a little bit, what are the kind of capabilities we ought to see the Russians uh, unleash against the Ukrainians, including what is going to be a much, much larger army? We're probably going to see more of the same because Russians will also have to find a way out of the positional warfare that both sides find themselves in. They'll have to break through Ukraine's well-established defenses. They'll have to negate the effect of um, Ukrainian UAVs as well as uh, FPV drones, which are ever-present. So they're building electronic warfare, counter UAV capacity. They're building their own UAV capacity. They're modernizing um, different types of artillery and tank systems as well. And obviously, they're still working on long-range drones like Shahed and the missile systems. So that hasn't changed. Again, the fighting, if it breaks out, will look very similar to what has been taking place over the past six months. Uh, and it really depends on who, which side has more of the technology that can make a difference. And so, for example, both Russians and Ukrainians were saying that whoever scales up a very successful UAV design or an electronic warfare system or counter UAV system, whoever scales it up will have the early advantage that they can capitalize upon. We certainly hope that advantage lies uh, with the Ukrainians than it does with the Russians. Um, Let me uh, ask you uh, about uh, the, the disagreement or the spat or the feud or however else uh, you want to put it between uh, uh, Zelensky and Zaluzhny. Um, Obviously there are some frustrations between the two men's uh, between the two men. Um, You know, the good news about winning uh, is that it encourages optimism and more winning. Um, That's not the current situation. Um, Zaluzhny wants more troops. Zelensky understands the challenges associated with this and the greater the setback, the harder recruiting becomes and the press gangs that have gone out to impress Ukrainians into service is also kind of a very thorny proposition. What does this, you know, and, and it looked like Zaluzhny was going to get fired and replaced, whether with Budyanov, the intelligence chief, although he's he's not a large scale battlefield commander, even though he's been very successful in special operations. Um, what's What's the sense and what's the impact of a feud like this on the national uh, psyche? 
but as well, right? I mean, generals are changed throughout the history of warfare, sometimes with beneficial uh, results. In this case, it looked like Zaluzhny was going to be fired, and he wasn't. What What's the impact of all of this, as far as you're concerned, as a strategic, as a strategist and a strategic analyst? Well, Zaluzhny is very respected across the military. He is respected internationally. He is someone who can speak his mind, obviously, and uh, he can communicate Ukrainian military needs to the larger international community, as he has done already multiple times in international op-eds. Uh, but uh, you were right to point out that the tension between the uh, the people who announce wars and people who lead the wars is a, a historical tension. It's always been the case. And obviously, there's going to be differences and disagreements over what must be done uh, at the front uh, for the greatest advantage, whether to buy some time, whether to save troops and forces, whether to... Uh, to do something else. I mean, obviously, uh, on the Russian side, we saw that uh, with General Surovikin withdrawing from the uh, Kherson area and incurring the wrath of the Kremlin, right? Surovikin saved soldiers, objectively speaking. He uh, ordered uh, an, an orderly retreat, which saved Russia a lot of time, but it was seen as yet another defeat. And so, uh, again, very logical military moves may not always agree with, and and they can actually clash with, larger political aims of the war. And so issues like mobilization, issues like international cooperation are very visceral and very important issues that which are discussed on a daily basis. And obviously Zelensky is the president of the country, is the leader of the nation, wants to be the sole individual who is deciding how this war is prosecuted. So when even a very popular general speaks his mind about how the war should be conducted and what should be done, uh, it is seen sort of um, in competition with... Um, the larger political aims articulated by Ukraine's civilian government. Uh, but again, Zaluzhny is respected, he is beloved, which is why removing him is not a simple proposition, even for someone who is as popular as Zelensky. You sound somewhat more optimistic about Ukraine's prospects at the moment than some others are. Um, are you comfortable they have enough people and are going to be able to marshal this new way which uh, Zaluzhny did mention to The Economist, right, in an article that was a little bit of a rift with uh, Zelensky saying, hey, look, the counteroffensive has stalled and absent, you know, a massive technological change, step change, it's not going to work. And obviously he's working at that massive uh, technological step change. Do, do, do you think the Ukrainians can pull this off absent getting more aid from the United States more quickly? And do they have enough people you know, and, and will they have enough experienced people left? I mean, that was a concern by from a Ukrainian commander I recently was on a call with. And he said, look, at, at this rate, if the bullets don't show up soon enough, we're going to run out of the people who can lead people in the future, right? And once those people are exhausted, we're, we're really screwed. Is, is your sense that they can actually hold their own for a while until more help can arrive and a, a better cavalry can muster maybe in the future in a different international coalition? I'll answer this way. I think the discussion that we're seeing right now, right, uh, the competition for ideas and influence between Zelensky and Zaluzhny is the answer to your question because there are probably different aims here and different ways to approach this problem. One is coming from a seasoned um, military veteran and others coming from the civilian leader who is leading this war effort. And I think whatever they decide upon 
or disagree upon will actually determine how this question is answered. And one last question about Replicator, uh, Sam. Uh, when the Deputy Defense Secretary launched this last year, gave an 18-month timeline to be able to produce you know, large numbers of attributable systems, unmanned systems that could be used uh, in you know any future crisis. There's a sense that some of this is aimed at uh, Ukraine, but more broadly, whether the United States in short order can produce things that it needs and do it quickly, given that almost everything we're trying to build is a three-year waiting list. Um, what's your sense on how this program is shaping up and what it will mean for U.S. forces, but potentially also for, for Ukraine and other allies and partners? I think it's a great question. I don't follow U.S. developments as closely as I'm uh, usually following uh, Russian-Ukrainian developments. And there's a lot of experts who can speak on the replicator issue. I think I will answer this way um, in, in two parts. Part number one, U.S. private sector and U.S. startup community is absolutely unparalleled in the history, in the history of mankind when it comes to technological developments. And if this community has to answer a technological question, it will do so, and it will do so in an absolutely amazing way. But there's also a second part. And the second part is, I think, a lot of discussions about sort of large-scale use of cheap, attributable systems was influenced by what we're seeing in Ukraine. And what we're seeing in Ukraine is made possible by Chinese components, which drive the cost of every drone down to the lowest possible level. Right. And so that's why we're talking about tens of thousands of drones that cost as little as four to five hundred dollars each, plus the cost of ammunition, the cost of training pilot, which, again, is a very low cost. U.S. replicator isn't dependent on Chinese components, right? It isn't going to be um, manufacturing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of systems. And so U.S. approach is quite different in that sense, that we will have thousands of systems instead of, let's say, a few dozen systems in operation today, but they will be probably more expensive, no matter what, no matter how we phrase it, than the Chinese drones, which are now flying in Ukraine. And so I think we have to keep that in mind. And any discussion about how um, we're going to use swarms or, or how we're going to drive the cost down must be held within the context that this is going to be a U.S.-centric approach, meaning components and the key parts are going to come from the United States and U.S. allies, not from China. If Replicator was built with Chinese components, we could build tens of thousands of systems, which would be extremely cheap, but that's not the case. And so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, utter, utterly uh, fascinating how the Chinese are really uh, on both sides of this conflict, right? Uh, it's... Uh... It's, it's, it's very... unprecedented. It really is unprecedented for one country to be so involved without actually getting involved. Right. Uh, and and technically by claiming, you know, that it is picking sides, but it's not picking sides. Right. We're making stuff available to the Ukrainians as well. You know, we're willing to be the peace broker in this. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, but I certainly hope, Sam, to your point, right, we get our own industrial act in order, because if we're going to be dependent on Chinese component, you know what I mean? As you said, we're going to have to create an almost entire ecosystem here in order to be able to satisfy some of these needs. And, you know, the key, I think, is to do this with our allies and partners that actually have an enormous amount of technology within their own borders so that it's much more of an allied approach as opposed to saying, hey, we're just going to do this, you know, in the United States exclusively and reinvent all of these uh, potentially problematic um, wheels. Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could uh, at some point depend on Ukrainian unmanned systems? That would be pretty good. Well, there's a lot of uh, cooperation right now, a lot of initiatives between the United States and Ukraine, between the tech communities, startup communities, right. 
in the militaries for the U.S. to learn from Ukraine, to invest in Ukrainian capabilities and to use some of those technologies if that's appropriate. So that's already happening and it's a good thing that it's happening. Uh, I think at this point, given that we don't know what aid from the United States is going to look like military or otherwise, I think that it's imperative, honestly, for there to be sort of a broader kind of a GoFundMe campaign and figure out how average citizens uh, who care can get involved and sort of uh, put put their uh, shoulder and their resources to the wheel to try to help our ally uh, out uh, in what is an existential fight and really going to define the future of U.S. national security as well. Uh, is that is that a big issue, Sam, in terms of playing directly into the messaging from Ukraine, from from Moscow and China, from your standpoint, right, who have always claimed the United States is a fair weather friend. And that's the reason why the stakes are so important for Putin. He wants to be able to show, look, I'm going to end up winning and they're fickle and short sighted. And, you know, I'll go through enormous criticism and pain to help Bashar al-Assad stay in power, for example. Uh, certainly Russian Propaganda likes to remind the world that United States was involved in military campaigns against a number of nations, build up allies there, and then once it departed, the allies uh, had to fend for themselves in one form or another. But that's a very kind of limited way of looking at things because Russian uh, propaganda um, usually criticizes the United States no matter what. Uh, and in many ways, it, it builds on some of the internal discussions which are taking place within the U.S. foreign policy community uh, uh, about uh, such um, uh, such international involvement in, in different parts of the world. So oftentimes it kind of um, it builds upon the criticism that's already sort of made public in U.S. foreign policy community in one form or another. And it uh, basically amplifies it via its uh, its own outlets. But again, that's that, that's only part of the issue. It's a very small part of the issue. And uh, obviously, in a propaganda like that, country like Russia wants to accentuate the worst without actually talking about other benefits that took place. Uh, and indeed, almost everything is not really credible or factually inaccurate as, as it tries to put all of this disinformation and misinformation out in the space. Sam, thanks very much. Always a, a pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Great to be back. And thanks very much to all of our sponsors, especially General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, for their generous support for this program that makes this and all of our programs possible. We'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks very much. And until then, have a great day. All right. Thanks, man.